the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today we chat to our last RAAF retiree in Coffs Harbour. It's Group Captain Retired Paul McLeod, and former intelligence officer. Paul was born in Melbourne into an Air Force family. After attending a number of schools across Australia and overseas, he completed his secondary education at Erina High School and later attended the University of Sydney, where he studied economics, philosophy and a little Japanese. After a short time as an infantryman in the Sydney University Regiment, Paul joined the RAF in 1978 for training on 105 pilots course. Paul was later commissioned into the intelligence category. In 1981, he completed basic Chinese language training at the ADF School of Languages and was later posted for advanced language study at Hong Kong University. During his career, Paul was seconded to the British garrison in Hong Kong, where he worked with British and PLA forces to support the reversion of sovereignty to China. He also served as Australia's defence attaché in Vietnam and Laos between 2003 and 2005, and then China 2008 to 2010. Since retiring from the RAF, Paul moved to Coffs Harbour, where he keeps busy with volunteer work as a boat crew member and radio operator with Marine Rescue. He is also president at a local Rotary Club, vice president of the local RAF Association and president at the Veterans Centre Mid-North Coast. Well, another chapter in the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, Group Captain, retired Paul McLeod, is with us. Paul, how are you today? Uh, Fine, thanks, Gareth. How are yourself? I'm exceedingly well Mm. and a great joy to be able to talk to you. Someone Mm. of... uh, a multilingual background, which we'll come to eventually. Mm. <laughs> Tell me, you grew up in an Air Force family. How hard was that? I thought it was a lot of fun, actually. My uh, father was an uh, Air Force engineer. Had uh, Both my uncles were uh, pilots. One was a knucklehead, one was a trashy. And uh, my grandfather was in the Army, and I had a cousin in the in the Navy, So, uh, but predominantly Air Force. Did that ne- necessitate, as a child growing up, going to a whole variety of schools? Yes, I, I went to about 10 different uh, you know, primary and high schools, but uh, my daughter beat me. I've got uh, two grown daughters. Uh, one of them went to 12 schools. I've only just recently moved from the area, but uh, you went to Erina High School. Yes, that's right. Um, my father was posted to the uh, embassy in Washington, and so I went over there with him uh, and finished the last year of you know the American high school over there. And then uh, I, my aim was always to join the Air Force, go to the academy. And uh, I wrote to the Air Force, and they said, uh, "Well, that high school, American high school, your diploma you've got there, we won't recognise that. You'll need to come back and do an HSC." So I did. I came back and boarded with my grandparents uh, at Erina. Obviously, you're doing the leaving the high school certificate in Australia, but then you go to Sydney University. Had you joined the Air Force then, or 
or not, what was the steps? Right. Uh, there was a little bit of a story there. I finished up, uh, uh, my, my plan always was to go uh, apply straight for the academy, and I did after high school. And everything was going uh, fine. I got a letter from the board saying uh, recommended uh, for admission. And the last step before actually getting a ticket down to Point Cook was uh, to go and do a series of specialist medical examinations. And one of them was uh, an eye doctor. So I went to the eye doctor and uh, he said, well, he said, you've got 20-20 vision now and you'll probably be okay, but your left eye may go short-sighted in the next few years. I want you to come back in a few years' time and I'll be able to tell whether it's, that left eye has gone short-sighted or not. So the, my, my, the world fell apart and I went back to the recruiting office and he said, I said, uh, here's the letter from the eye doctor. What do I do? And he said, well, my advice is just go to university, pick subjects you want to do and come back in two years time and we'll test you again. And if your eyes are okay, you can go straight in. So I went off to uni. <laughs> two years time on the day, I was uh, there knocking on the recruitment uh, officer's door and I said, here's the letter, uh, you know, can I get my eyes tested again? And he said, sure. So off to uh, Macquarie Street again, I went. Uh, another different doctor this time and he threw the machine on my eyes and he said, he said, your eyes are fine. He, and he said, I don't know how anyone else could have said two years ago that your eyes are going to go short-sighted. Here's your ticket, off we go. <laughs> no, no comment. Well, yeah. while in that two-year period you're at Sydney University, mm. you took up economics, philosophy, and also Japanese. Uh, an interesting combination of subjects. Yes. Uh, it was um, when uh, when the application of the academy uh, was, um, you know, failed with the I thing, I, uh, I had very little time to organise um, um, my acceptances for university and I finished up changing my preferences about three times in the last two weeks before the deadline. Uh, I had engineering, then I had dentistry, then I had also and, uh, and I finished up doing uh, enrolling in the arts faculty and I just picked subjects that I thought might be interesting because as far as I was concerned I was just biding my time until I had sure. another crack at joining the Air Force. So, uh, sure. Did you always have an interest in languages or did you have an affinity or what was the... I had a little bit of a, an interest in Japanese culture. I was quite strongly into judo at the time. Did you actually graduate from Sydney University? Finally, no, or? no, I only did two years because that's what the doctor said, uh, I come back in two years. So uh, <laughs> I raced back there and uh, yeah, so... You did join the university regiment. Why? Yes. Oh, just coming from a military background, a military family, I thought uh, the Sydney University... Now, it wasn't very popular in those days, too, I have to say. Um, uh, they gave us jungle greens and things, and uh, and I lived just opposite the Union Cafe across the Broadway there, and, and I would walk to parades uh, on the campus, you know, in my jungle greens, and I've got a few strange looks, I have to say. You know, in those days, this was just immediately post-Vietnam, and uh, I remember. it wasn't I remember. that popular, so... Anyway, look, forget Sydney University yep. now. You're out. You're into the Air Force. Your eyes are okay. <laughs> 2020. You're training. Uh, what were you training? What, what, what is a CT for? Just to go back one step, my original intention was to go to the academy. By the time I was, uh, I was now sort of bumping off uh, 1920, I was too old to get the academy. So they put me on the uh, pilot course straight away. So 105 right. pilot course. The CT4 was a, uh, an air trainer, uh, basically um, a bug smasher, I suppose, a basic flying training aircraft. It was the successor to the windshield. So uh, right. it's the right. ab initio uh, aircraft that everybody starts on uh, in those days. And, yep. um, and then you moved into the Mackie, was that, yes. or was it in tandem? Uh, no, the, it was sequential. You always did the uh, one FTS, uh, six months at one FTS in the air trainer, uh, the CT4, and then nine months over at uh, Pierce in the Mackies with uh, number two flying training school, two FTS. So I'm interested to know what the steps were 
uh, leading from training into the intelligence category. Uh, how did that happen? Well, it was a bit of a, a personal um, disappointment for me. I got uh, within five, five flying hours of graduating and my instrument flying was, uh, was quite shaky. Uh, I had the instrument rating, but uh, I was you know, struggling with uh, aspect of particularly formation and my instrument flying was not fantastic. Anyway, uh, I finished up getting the axe. I, I did a an instrument approach one day with the instructor and uh, completely balls it up and finished up flying in the wrong direction and dropped my landing gear and did all sorts of things and he said he said that's it that's the final one so I finished up uh, off the course and okay. uh, well, so not going to be a pilot that was pretty much what yes that's right yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously you're still in the RAAF and that oh, no doubt look after their own what did they then say to you or what here are your choices or well yes uh, they're pretty you know there was a lot of people uh, were in the same boat as me but uh, most had gone earlier but uh, traditionally you you had one of you know three or four main choices one was to leave there was no uh, no obligation to stay if you you know didn't yep. finish the course but a lot of uh, my uh, fellows who were on the same course who didn't make it finished up going into navigation uh, becoming navigators quite a few would go into air traffic control and uh, certainly you know um, the senior navigating officer over at 2FTS there uh, grabbed me when he found out that I'd uh, been scrubbed off the course and he took me down to the library and he had a long chat about uh, why I should go into navigating uh, I'd finished the ground school and everything so uh, he, he, he tried to encourage me to go uh, navigating but I was a little bit um, uh, at this point in my life, I uh, started beating a path which uh, was untrod. You know, my uncle, one of my uncles, had been uh, a pilot in the Air Force, but in, as a more senior officer, he finished up. Uh, I don't know whether he was actually the director of Air Force Intelligence uh, and Security, DAFIS, or the deputy director, but either way, he worked in the intelligence area. Yep. And so uh, I knew that, and uh, not many of my uh, colleagues that you know as 20 year old cadets look, looking to fly knew anything about intelligence it wouldn't have entered our, our minds uh, at all but I knew about this and so I decided to apply for that and that really uh, set the cat amongst the pigeons because traditionally uh, intelligence officers in the Air Force had come from you know uh, several uh, sources one was experienced air crew uh, pilots and navigators etc who had say lost their medical and couldn't fly anymore, they could often, uh, you know, become professional intellos, intelligence officers. Uh, the other uh, big category of, uh, of uh, sourcing, if you like, for, for intellos was the troops in allied trades, so linguists and SIGSOPs and, uh, you know, photographic interpreters who, who, who could, uh, you know, get commissioned as, as in intellos. And so um, most of the intellos were, you know, 30 years or at, at least uh, or more, often in their 40s and 50s. So here was this 20-year-old kid comes along and says, I want to be an intello. And uh, it, it really got the system scratching its head because uh, nobody had done this before, as far so as I was aware. Yeah. What, what, what did they try to discourage you? Or what was the... No, not really. Uh, there was a couple of dispensations. I, I went before the board and uh, that went fine, but except I must admit uh, I could see the president of the board was in two minds about uh, you know the desirability of taking into his uh, system a 20-year-old kid <laughs> uh, as an intello. It, uh, it was quite unusual, almost unheard of. But um, in fact, I had to get a special dispensation after I moved in because uh, you had to be 21 to hold a top secret security clearance in those days. 
and I was not quite 21, so uh, I had to sort of uh, get a, a waiver for a few months until that, that uh, well, passed. Well, at, at least there's no eye problem. You're calling, no. it, you're calling an Intello. Uh, at then, what did intelligence do? What was its role? Well, really, it hasn't changed much uh, over, the, uh, over the decades. Uh, the, 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 the techniques and the methods and, uh, and the tools uh, are, uh, have changed dramatically, but the basic um, function is to support the application of air power. So in many cases, you, you know, especially in the targeting world, for example, you, uh, you need to know what, you, what you're aiming for and, uh, and to right. achieve the effect that you want militarily. So and it's so, not a double seven role. It's not. It's not that kind of role. No, no. There are James you know Bond some up. some of the things that uh, we did and some of the tools we used. Uh, we necessarily need to keep uh, close to our chest because uh, sure. they would be ineffective if uh, the opposition knew about them. So, but uh, uh, no, it, it's basically. I, I like to think of it as, as very similar in some ways to journalism. In some ways, you, you're gathering snippets of information, raw pieces of, of data, and then constructing, you know, by processing and analysing it, uh, you're actually generating something that is, um, is useful to, in, this, in our case, a warfighter. In the case of journalism, you're actually gathering items to put together a story to then sell to. In fact, it's amazing uh, in the intelligence world, even some of the terminology and the language we use would be very familiar to journalists. We talk about reporting, intelligence reporting, etc. And yeah, sources I, and gathering information. Yeah, so. <laughs> to what you're saying. Yes. Did your uh, undertaking basic Chinese come before or be as a result of your involvement in the intelligence category? No. When you went into the intelligence category in those days, you were expected to go into a, uh, an area of primary specialisation. And uh, one of those was uh, languages. Another one was uh, photographic interpreting work. Another one was uh, squadron intelligence work, supporting you know, squadron uh, warfighters with yep. briefings, etc. And uh, there was you know, three or four main areas like that. And so as a new intelligence officer, one of the, we were given a, a battery of aptitude tests. We were taken down to Langs and, uh, and they gave us a language aptitude test. We were, on our basic course, we also went to the, what was then called the barn, the, the headquarters, if you like, of the uh, uh, photographic intelligence uh, interpreting world. And uh, we did a, a short course there and a bit of a familiarisation package, which included aptitude testing for photographic work. Some people can peer down those microscope things, I don't know, <laughs> and, and not see what, what other people can see. So some people have a knack for these things. Turns out I, I did quite well on the language aptitude test. So they said, uh, we see a future view in languages. I said, oh, that'd be good. Uh, what, what languages? Uh, they said, what which language would you like to do? And I said, oh, well, I did a bit of Japanese at university. I said, thanks for that. You'll do Chinese. <laughs> so <laughs> I found myself down at Point Cook on a Chinese course in 1981. The course itself, was it being run by a Caucasian teaching you Mandarin or was it run by a Chinese speaking well, the first thing to say about the course is that uh, I saw many other countries, America, uh, Britain, who had uh, you know, produced the same kind of one-year language graduate. And by far and away, the graduates from Point Cook, RAF language school as it was, just were streets ahead of their counterparts graduating from Monterey in America or uh, British language school. And, uh, and I think some of it was 
it was several elements that came together, but one of them goes to the question you just asked about the staffing. We had definitely a native speaker on staff. Some of the larger departments had several, but uh, Chinese, we had one in my year. And then we had Caucasian uh, speakers of Chinese, uh, other Air Force officers who had been before, before me, and they were there to set the tone. And I have to say that the language course I did at Point Cook there was the toughest, uh, most gruelling course I've done in my life. There was no mercy spared. And it, it goes back to, you know, we were getting, bed, getting to bed at midnight, uh, or late, some minute, often later than midnight, after having memorised lessons and things. So you'd finish up leaving the, the school at, say, four o'clock, go back, uh, run, go for a bit of a run, kick a footy round or something, uh, go have a wash up and have some dinner. And then at uh, 6.30, 7 o'clock, straight into the books. And you didn't stop until just after midnight. We would all come out and have a cup of coffee and uh, in the barracks there, uh, to you know, compare notes about what we'd just been working on. And then usually into bed, half past 12, 1 o'clock, and then up at 7.30, do it again day after day, week after week. There was no um, no relief from that. There was, Saturday night was our night off. We'd go and raise hell on Saturday night. And, and, and do it, it all in English. Uh, yes. So the, the year itself, at the end of that year, did that provide you with enough vocabulary to be able to communicate or was that that the intention and did that was it achieved oh it certainly achieved the 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 skills you came away with uh were basic uh you know so the newspaper you could read a newspaper not with a dictionary you needed to sit down and uh, and uh, depending on whether the the topic uh, in Chinese of the newspaper article was uh, was technical or general in nature uh, but you would uh, you could you could you know come up with a translation of it you could also hold a conversation with uh, somebody in Chinese you know um, and we we did a quite a lot of specialist military terminology uh, so uh, you know the idea was that we could then you know talk to another intelligence or military professional about uh, topics that were of, of mutual interest and uh, and do that in Chinese but uh, invariably um, one year is even intensive, as as intensive as the course was at Point Cook, is not really enough to get you. We were called a what you call a B grade linguist at that point. To get uh, to a, a higher level of working proficiency, you needed to do a, go off and uh, do another year, and that was usually in country. We would uh, send people to Hong Kong okay. for for advanced training. Really, Paul. I mean, it might not seem so to you, but it does to me. If in only one year you are able to read read Chinese as well. That is quite remarkable achievement for the course. As I say, the, it was a very intensive uh, course and it was built that way, designed that way from the very beginning. Uh, the language school started uh, uh, during World War II. There was, uh, as the Pacific campaign was, um, was underway, uh, we were finding ourselves capturing more and more Japanese troops and we didn't have any Japanese linguists to interrogate them. And yeah. so a, a very far-sighted uh, Air Force flight lieutenant decided to, um, he was an education officer, he decided to uh, approach the powers that be, uh, get some funding and approval to set up a language school, and the time was against him. He, 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 got, he got it, and it was, the first uh, classes were set up in the Kujibo Hotel <laughs> in Sydney. Oh. So he managed to get six or seven rooms upstairs and called them, you know, uh, the Air Force School of Languages. And he started training uh, young airmen to be in interrogators in Japanese. Now, the war was raging and the prisoners kept on 
piling up and the, the time was against uh, the trainers. And so the, the system that they developed was, was extremely intensive, extremely pointed and um, focused on producing a military, a working military linguist. Nothing else mattered. Don't worry about, uh, you know, uh, learning about Japanese culture or literature or, you know, um, understanding plays or history or anything like that. Just the language uh, and just the, the military side of it was what was uh, required. And that um, that was in World War Two, as I say. Through the 50s, the, the same... Uh, this, is a side, this is a side of the Air Force that it's like under a blanket. It's hidden. That's I, right. I was aware of this, and I thought I had a reasonable working knowledge of, of all things military in Australia. It's a side that is part of this very rich history of the Royal Australian Air Force. That's right. And, uh, you know, the some of the uh, graduates from the uh, Air Force School of Languages have gone on to achieve uh, remarkable things uh, around the uh, around the traps. Um, you know, uh, we've, got, we've had am- ambassadors and... Uh, uh, defence attaches and all sorts of people have moved on from usually young airmen uh, doing yep. the course as a young fellow, and they uh, they get a, a very solid grounding. Uh, we used to tra- uh, train the DFAT uh, officers, diplomats. They mm. would come down to Point Cook. Uh, we'd send them a, back a year later as as trained linguists, and off they'd go uh, into their countries. Mm. Is that um, where the former Prime Minister Rudd learned to speak Chinese? No, I don't think he did that. Uh, but um, I have spoken Chinese with former Prime Minister Rudd, <laughs> standing on the on the tarmac in Beijing uh, when I was defence attaché up there. We uh, he came in on uh, an Air Force jet, and as we were seeing him off, uh, he uh, came by and shook our hands because you know, we'd uh, looked after him during his visit, and I had a, a very brief chat with him in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, look, look you, you're Chinese and your role in the Royal Australian Air Force, a very, very important part part of history is the uh, handover of Hong Kong mm. to back to mainland China. Um, now, I know that you worked very closely with both the British and also the People's Liberation Army on that. Are you able to share with us anything about that period of time that isn't going to cause us to get the Secrets Act to send upon us? Yes. Uh, no. Uh, the, it, it was a, a very um, momentous time um, in, uh, in in history because uh, our first daughter was born in Hong Kong, and uh, we, you know, after the language school, I got set up there to Hong Kong University for a, a couple of years to study. I also did the British Army School uh, course there, and while I was up there, we. Uh, um, had our first child and so for me uh, to go back to Hong Kong um, for to, as part of the handover takeover in 1997 was uh, was actually not just a, uh, a a professional professionally interesting uh, development it was it was, it was quite uh, you know emotional as well from a personal perspective um, but it was interesting the way that uh, that finished up in 1996 I was uh, finishing up on um, staff course and we were just about uh, two or three weeks away from, from uh, graduating. And uh, we were on the road and uh, I got a phone call from Air Force headquarters and that was a squadron leader I knew. And he said, uh, Paul, what do you, what do you, you know how you've, you've got your posting for this other place next year? And I said, yes. And he said, scrap that. Uh, we'd like to send you to Hong Kong uh, at very short notice. He said, you need to be ready to go in two weeks. And I said, what's the deal? And it turns out that the British Army had... Uh, uh, 
tapered off their uh, training for Chinese linguists in anticipation that after 1997, there would be no further requirement for them. They would yep. be uh, effectively you know, east of the sewers, I suppose. Um, unfortunately uh, for the uh, British, uh, the last Chinese linguists that they had in the training system uh, got uh, very sick and so was, uh, was not able to take up that job. And so the British then approached us and said, have you got any linguists we could borrow for, for six months uh, just to go from you know, January until 30th of June uh, in 1997? And they said, uh, yes, we have. <laughs> Here's his name. And uh, so two weeks later, I was on a, on a plane to Hong Kong uh. and uh, working with the British garrison there. Now, the way it worked, uh, there was a, a number of aspects. The British were tapering down all of the sections that they traditionally had uh, run in the garrison that was in its heyday it was very busy and very uh, you know multifaceted and vibrant uh, you know garrison they ran there and they needed to taper all those down to a, a fine point and eventually you know nothing on the 30th of june and so um, we finished up doing uh, as sections would fold and those guys would pack up their tent and go back to the uk uh, in that last six months before the handover uh, we would sort of pick up the slack uh, in the uh, the J2 area in the um, in the in the, the barracks there. So at one stage there, I finished up. Uh, they gave me a, a company of British infantry, and said that's the um, uh, the border detachment, the, the, and uh, you you get to task them. So uh, part of my job there was to go and do the rounds along the border, you know, put on the jungle greens and and go uh, creeping along the border and climb up into the watchtowers and. Uh, there was a lot you could see into the on the other side of the border, and um, so another another time though there would be once the we got within a few months of the handover takeover the PLA sent over to uh, uh, Hong Kong an advanced party uh, headed up by a major general and I think I can't remember exactly but it was something like two hundred or two hundred and forty troops, and so the British uh, cleared aside a, 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 a barracks for them in. HMS Tamar, the upside down whiskey bottle on the foreshore in, yeah. in Hong Kong there, and uh, and they moved in. And so once a week, the um, commander of British forces, uh, Major General Brian Dutton at the time, uh, I believe he finished up uh, much more senior than that uh, later on. I, he finished up as a four star, but uh, in those days he was the commander of British forces. And once a week, uh, the two star Major General from the PLA would arrive in our barracks, uh, you know, in the headquarters there, uh, with a half a dozen of his staff officers, and uh, Major General Dutton would have half of his, uh, half a dozen of his key staff officers, and we'd have a coordinating meeting. And I was the interpreter for Major General Dutton. So the Chinese had their interpreter, uh, uh, our Major General, the Commander of British Forces, had me as his interpreter. So the idea is that he would, uh, uh, as the conversation to, uh, went to and fro across the table, uh, the uh, when the major, Chinese major general was speaking, his interpreter would then say that same uh, section of dialogue in English, yes. and then uh, Major General Dutton would respond, and then I would say straight after him what he had just said, but in Chinese. Yes. So that's the way it worked, and uh, worked very well. And every week we'd have our meetings, and um, so it was uh, it was good to be you know. Um, more than just a fly on the wall. I was actually, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't, didn't. Very important, didn't, fly on the wall. Uh, uh, Paul, what, uh, what feeling did you get back from the contingent of Chinese opposite the table when they heard you talking in Mandarin? 
Oh, um, it doesn't didn't phase in very much. Um, you know, they've been used to uh, meeting, you know, professional interpreters, etc. But I have to say that um, that uh, earlier on, before 1997, uh, uh, while I was studying at the British Army School in Osborne Barracks in Hong Kong, we were allowed uh, to go into China as part of an organised group, a military group, uh, the language course from uh, from Hong Kong into Guangzhou. And this was 1982. And we were one of the very first... Um, uh, military officials allowed into China after the, you know, Cultural Revolution, etc. And that was an experience, I have to say. Uh, I remember walking down the main street in Guangzhou, and this was um, in the days when everybody had uh, blue Mao jackets and, you know, Mao yeah. hats and things, and the girls wore no makeup and picked out. Little and, red book. Yeah, it was not long after that. And I was walking down the street, and one of the, an old man came up to me, and he started uh, patting me on the uh, just above the backside, you know, on the, on the small of my back. And he was just patting me on the, on, around there as if he was looking for something. And I, I said, turned around and said to him in Chinese, uh, excuse me, what, what are you doing? And he said, um, I want to see where your tail is. You know, where, did you, where do you keep your tail? And I said, what? And he had been told that foreigners had tails. And he, he was sure that mine must be wrapped up somewhere in the back of my pants. And he was trying to... Try. Right. So I've told that story to Chinese and they just, uh, you know, get embarrassed, hugely embarrassed. But, you know, from 1982 to 1997 was 15 years. And during that 15 years, um, you know, China had opened up a hell of a lot and they saw a lot more. And, and certainly the people we were dealing with, the professional PLA uh, officers who had been selected uh, to, to head up the and be part of the advanced party, they were selected for their uh, their brains and their sophistication. So nothing phased them, really. Yeah, I uh, share with you that I one of the jobs I had in that period of time was uh, covering that story mm. on air live in Sydney. And one of the people that I had the privilege of talking to very briefly, but nevertheless talking to, was Dutton. Mm. And he came across on the telephone, at least, as quite a remarkable person. Yeah, so I, uh, every, every now and then in your career, you meet a, a natural-born leader, and he was one of them. Uh, he's, he was quite a, a, a lovable guy, you know. Uh, he, he had a, a natural, naturally calm and um, uh, effective way of, of leading, and he, he got the most out of his troops, and there was never any fuss. Each uh, Monday morning, we would have our, um, our uh, meeting up in his office, and uh, I often I would represent the J2. So uh, I would, there was only three, <laughs> there was only three of us at the end. So you know, we got a, a ch- chance every every second go. But um, uh, yeah, th- he was always very um, very cool, and uh, he had a, a great humanity about him too. I, I very much admired him. And uh, if we fast forward to the actual night of the 30th, uh, when the, uh, the barracks was closed, um, I, I made my way uh, outside the barracks. We had to leave by midnight. That's when the, the PLA marched in. And I found myself out, outside the front of my barracks in, as a civilian now, with uh, just waiting for a, a, a plane to go back to Australia. And I've uh, walked down to the very front of the, um, the turnstile area where the... Uh, Major General Dutton and his staff would be walking past to go and board HMS Chatham. Uh, the British had brought in uh, uh, Britannia and uh, HMS Chatham, a frigate, to uh, to help you know escort, uh, escort people out uh, on the night of the, the 30th. Uh, 
by then the, the 1st of July. And I managed to grab uh, Major General B- uh, Dutton as he went past and I, I, I grabbed him and we shook hands and I said, thanks for everything, sir. It was a really, it was a moment. He was leaving, the last British commander, British forces leaving and I had helped him get to where he was and we had a, a handshake and he, he jumped on the boat and off he went and I watched them sail across the harbour and I looked yeah. back at the barracks and uh, in I had a room in the in the barracks in HMS Tamar up on the 26th floor and uh, I saw the light on <laughs> so the Chinese had moved in in the space of about an hour and, and uh, there was somebody in my room <laughs> which I'd vacated an hour and a half before you know the Royal Australian Air Force has up to that point at least given you a moment in history, a significant moment in history. Well, that's right. And uh, our, the HMS Tamar, our, our headquarters um, building, was very close to con- the convention centre where all the main uh, ceremonies were being conducted, the flag raising, the uh, and Prince Charles and the... Uh, I think, who was there? I think it was Jung Zemin, that's right, Jung Zemin, President Jung Zemin was there. Anyway, um, I had uh, no official part in, in any of that. Um, my job was going to end on, at midnight. So I, I just uh, went to, up onto the roof at HMS Tamar, the very top of the, the whiskey bottle. I got myself a, a chair and a, a camera and, uh, and watched. Uh, I remember it was drizzling. The, the rain was just drizzling very lightly. So I sat there in the drizzle watching history in the making uh, down below me with the lights, etc. And then yep. at uh, 20 to 12, I went downstairs and uh, watched the little ceremony, uh, the handy changing the guard at uh, the entrance there. And I walked out and that was it. No more job. No more job. Then yeah. back to Australia. Yes. And in fact, uh, out of all of that, um, by a little bit of, um, uh, shall we say, uh, advanced planning, I managed to lay claim to being the last member of the British garrison to leave Hong Kong. When, uh, when I got sent to, um, to Hong Kong, the, the Air Force said to me, look, when you get there, just book yourself a, a flight back uh, after the, the 1st of July. And so a few months before the, the 1st of July, I, I rang Qantas and I said, uh, have you got any, plane, any tic- seats on a plane back to Australia on the 2nd? And he said, yes, there's plenty. And uh, I said, OK, I'll call you back. <laughs> so I, I left it for a few weeks. And I rang again and said, have you got any plane tickets, you know, on the 1st of July? And they said, oh, no, they're all booked out now. I said, what about the, uh, the 2nd or 3rd? And he said, yeah, we've got a few of those. I said, I'll call you back. So I kept on delaying things until uh, the first available flight was, uh, was about a week after <laughs> the 1st of uh, July. Oh, so oh, I managed to stay on for another week at a friend's place. Oh, and. Uh, Madness, Paul. Method in your madness. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, but it was true. the The first available flight was, you know, the, the whatever it was, the seventh of July when I came back. It's just that yeah. I, I left it, uh, quite a while to arrange that. Share with us. You've had numerous, but you've had uh, two unit command appointments. Uh, firstly, as wing commander, you commanded the Defence International Training Centre. Then, as group captain, you commanded the Joint Operations Intelligence Centre about those two appointments? Well, uh, the first thing to say, of course, is that uh, a unit command is uh, a real feather in your cap. Uh, you, you, uh, you don't miss those opportunities and um, they, they, you grab them with both hands. And so um, 1998, uh, I got a phone call saying, um, how would you like a, a command? And it's on promotion. Uh, the only problem is that at that point I was in Canberra uh, and they said, the only problem is it's in Melbourne. And uh, my two girls were in the last few years of high school at that point. 
So I said, yep, I can't knock back this. Uh, it's, a, it's a promotion and a, and a, a command on promotion. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'll go. But I said, I'll leave my, my family and um, the kids in, in Canberra here. Uh, we had a house in Canberra at that time. I said, I'll go down and just be a, a geographic bachelor and commute back from Melbourne. Uh, and I said, on that basis, uh, is there any chance you could make the posting a two-year posting rather than three? And uh, the, uh, the personnel system was kind enough to grant me that. And so I went down there for two years as a, as a bachelor, if you like. And it was you a did, You did come back and see the family occasionally, I hope. Yes, no. It started off every, every second week I would drive back. Um, I was, was, was seven, hour, seven and a half hours door to door. I could leave the mess at Laverton where I was living and pull into my driveway in Canberra seven and a half hours later. So I got into the, uh, a bit of a routine where on the Friday afternoon I would um, uh, pull CO's privilege and, and take off a little bit early on, on Friday afternoon and, uh, and pull into a home in Canberra at about 11 o'clock uh, that night and then spend Saturday and most of Sunday with the family, by the lawns, to, to little athletics and all the other things we're doing and then uh, on Sunday afternoon I'd turn around and go back to to point uh, to Levin and say yeah. yeah were you not also the last commander of the joint operations intelligence center? yes now the the, the, the uh, that was a different one the joint operations intelligence center was um, in Garden Island in Sydney uh, with the Mar what maritime headquarters and uh, yes at that point the the new um, headquarters, which is now at Bungendore, was being formed. And so uh, the intelligence, or the operational intelligence support side of things was provided by the Joint Operations Intelligence Centre, the JOIC, and it was being disbanded, but the functions were being transferred into the new headquarters in, in Bungendore right. uh, with, the, with the move. So the function never changed. It's just that the, the unit uh, failed... You know, no longer existed, but uh, the, the the job was still being done, but not as a as a formed unit, so without mm. a CO's type thing. So, but that was a very um, diverse command. Uh, you know, most of the time uh, at a, a unit level, you you've got one main theme to your job. You know, for instance, at the Defence National Training Centre, you know, the the job is basically uh, to act as kind of principal, if you like, for a um, a campus where we train foreign military officers and get their admin ready to go so that they can um, uh, have the English skills, their administration is squared away, and then that they're able to go and do courses with the Defence Force sure. to, to go sure. and be a, learn to be a parachutist or a pilot or a, uh, whatever. Uh, now, and most of the flying squadrons, for example, will have a, a, a quite clearly defined um, role and mission and it's all focused around one aspect of air power but the yep. Joint Operations Intelligence Centre was effectively three units together um, there was a, a data processing area if you like uh, I'm being a little bit um, cagey here but uh, and then there was a, a group of analysts uh, who provided analytical support to the intelligence business and yeah so there was a, uh, a, a, a three different areas as different as chalk and cheese uh, sure, to each other sure. and one person well, sitting on top of them because it's intelligence we'll just generalize around mm. all of that um at what point when you became defense attache uh, to vietnam laos and then china 
Uh, were you still in the Air Force or was this post-Air Force? Oh, no, this definitely uh, the defence attaché's job is uh, to basically uh, go to a foreign embassy, work there for, uh, for, uh, under the ambassador, but the, the, the main job is to act as CDF's messenger uh, right. in that country. So both to take uh, messages and information from that country's you know, uh, host military yep. back to Australia... Uh, with your, you know, recommendations and cultural interpreting, I used to call it. So sure. uh, to help uh, our people in Canberra understand what's happening in, say, in the case of Vietnam, in Hanoi. So uh, I, we, we would go and have discussions with the Vietnam People's Army about training opportunities or visits and that kind of thing. And, and then uh, I would take that information then right back to Canberra uh, with the, you know, the, the details of the proposal, say, but then I would add some um, cultural interpreting, if you like, and say what it meant and, and wh- whether this was a good or bad thing for us sure. and uh, uh, you know, perhaps some of the, the subtleties that weren't immediately apparent to somebody working in Canberra. And so was, uh, Were you still in uniform? That's, absolutely, that was, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Sorry. In fact, uh, <laughs> uh, I used to walk, walk around the streets if, uh, in Hanoi uh, with my uh, drab, you know, short pants and, and uh, uh, brown shorts and brown... And I, at one stage there, there was a, an old gentleman uh, on the street in Hanoi who must have... Um, I think he might have had some mental health issues, but he seemed convinced that I was a French colonial policeman. And he, he wanted to have a go at me, you know, beat me up on the, si- on the, on the street in the middle of Hanoi because I was walking down the street in my Australian Air Force short pants, you know, brown yeah. uniform. A drab uniform, but uh, yeah, so a couple of bystanders came to my aid and uh, got him off me. But uh, so Vietnam and Laos, I mean, you didn't speak Laotian or Vietnamese, did you? Yes, uh, before before we uh, before we send anyone overseas, there's nearly always an opportunity if the the host country's language is not English, for that person to to go to our language school um, and study a year. Uh, it, it's very very useful, uh, not just um, at the professional working level when you're engaging with, in this case, the Vietnam People's Army. But also, it, it makes you a much more effective defence attaché if you can get out uh, of the office and, and, you know, take the pulse of the, what's happening on the street sort of thing. And sometimes to do that, you need to be aware of, you know, what people are saying around you and you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to travel. And uh, so that was very good. In those, so before I went to Hanoi, they sent me down to, again, to our language school. And this time I did Vietnamese. And, uh, for a year. So, English, Mandarin, Vietnamese, Laotian, a little bit of English, and a year of Japanese. Are there any other languages in your your catalogue? Well, I did schoolboy French, but uh, you know, um, oh, okay. <laughs> I, before I was married, I, I came across a um, a young French lady that I took out you know, on a date, sort of thing, and I was I was trying my best to speak my schoolboy French to her, and all that was coming out was Chinese. So it was, uh, <laughs> I wasn't getting very far. I, I was actually digging myself a, a hole that I decided to stop. <laughs> I believe you're now involved. Well, sorry, where, what year did you actually leave the Air Force? Uh, I stayed on in the reserve. I left the permanent Air Force about 2015 and uh, stayed in Canberra. My wife wasn't ready uh, quite to retire at that stage. Yep. So I stayed uh, helping out in the reserve. Um, uh, doing things like um, escorting Chinese delegations as so they would uh, arrive in Australia. I would go out to the airport, meet them in uniform, uh, 
and walk them through the system and get them into their hotel and then make sure that they got to their first meetings in Canberra and, and you know, look after them uh, after they'd finished their official meetings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I was in the reserve doing that. Then uh, after two or three years of that, when my wife was ready to retire, um, we pulled the pin and came to Coffs Harbour. So. And why Coffs Harbour? Well, it was an interesting process. We, uh, uh, coming from, as I said, an Air Force uh, background, my, we had no family uh, roots in one particular location. Um, and uh, we had I've had some family in, in Brisbane, some in Sydney. And so we decided that, you know, somewhere up on the, in between Sydney and Brisbane was probably the right answer for us to live. And Lindy was very keen for uh, wherever it was that we were going to live um, to be an attractive place for the grandkids, future grandchildren, to come and want to visit. So um, uh, we, we're very much uh, looking at that. So we started exploring, you know, doing short trips up and down the coast and going into little fishing villages and looking at uh, places. And, and we eventually um, realised we were, you know, you'd find some houses that Lindy was in love with. And, uh, and then I'd said, but what? I can't go fishing here. You know, I'm very much a water sport sort of person and there was no, no way, nowhere for me to go sailing or fishing. And so we finished up, um, we eventually sat down and made a list in true staff course style. Uh, wherever we were going to live needed to have these essential criteria filled. One, two, three, four, five. And we, we made a set and made a written list. And then there was a list of nice to have, desirable criteria. And we, if... The more of those that uh, the boxes were ticked, well, then, you know, the more. So long story short, uh, Coffs Harbour was the one that ticked all of the must-have boxes and most of the nice-to-have boxes. So, okay. I, uh, I'm Given that you went to Erin High, I would have thought maybe Terrigal or, or uh, Aboka or... Yes, we looked at that. Uh, probably a little bit too crowded now. I went back. Uh, I've taken a few trips down memory lane back to uh, Hardy's Bay where, where I used to live, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's changed. It, I, I stood on the side of the road. I could barely even recognise which block, you know, our house was on. Uh, my grandfather had built it with his, with his hands you know, after World War II uh, and it's gone, you know, uh, and the block had been re-landscaped. So, yeah, that kind of held uh, no, uh, no enduring, you know, emotional connection for us now. So. Good, good location, yep. and you're also involved in marine rescue, I believe. Yes, I've uh, I've found my channeling my inner sailor these days. Um, uh, I, I joined marine rescue, and uh, here in Coffs, we run things a little bit differently to your average uh, marine rescue unit. Um, the uh, the system here is that everybody does radio operator training, so I, I did all that, and uh, but my aim was to go and work on the uh, rescue boat. Mm. So um, I did the. Uh, radio opera training, started doing my shifts and then started the crew training. Uh, I had to go to TAFE and do uh, a Dickies course. And uh, anyway, I quite enjoyed that. So I, I rolled up and did uh, the coxswain's course, you know, the boat driver's course. And I'm now, uh, in fact, after this interview, heading off to TAFE again, I'm now enrolled in uh, what they call the Master 5 uh, course. So we're heading into sort of professional levels of um, ship driving licenses, if you like. But um, I, I, I'm not looking to do it for a professional reasons but just um personal interest the uh I, 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 i've quite i quite love the way the navigating uh, world has managed to you know use geometry so you can find yourself in the middle of the ocean just by calibrate you know, trigonometry essentially and i yeah. find that fascinating i love it 
It doesn't surprise me at all that group captain retired Paul McLeod would be continuing to look for challenges. Uh, Paul, this has been a most enjoyable chat as far as I'm concerned. Firstly, learning about an aspect of the Royal Australian Air Force that, well, it's a secret, but learning about the intelligence side of the the Air Force is, is quite revealing and quite interesting. And I want to thank you for giving up your time today to actually share that with not only me, but the person who's listening to you right now on this podcast. And thank you for your service. And thank you for being involved with the Royal Australian Air Force in a very important part of history in terms of what's happening in Asia and what's happening in Asia today. So thank you for your time, sir. Congratulations and take care. It's been a pleasure, Gareth. Thanks very much. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of per adua ad astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.